Gresham College presents Reducing Inequalities in Child Health, Part 3 Transport, Health and Wellbeing by Dr Judy Green Thanks very much and, and thank you very much for the, uh, the invitation to speak. What, what I'm going to do follows on sort of from Danny's talk which, which took a very big global view of inequalities and what I want to do... Um, this afternoon is, is bring the focus down to London and use two examples of transport policy from London just to show the potential, I think, for thinking about very upstream policies and how they can get that elusive win-win for well-being generally and for inequalities in particular in relation to um, child well-being. And I'm um, thinking about transport because it's increasingly important for well-being in, in, in modern societies. We need transport not just to get to the goods and services we need for health, but we also need mobility to participate in society. We need mobility to be able to just get to the places where, when we want to get them and, and where we want to go. We need it for that kind of autonomy and, and, and independence. Children and young people are particularly vulnerable to the social exclusion that can happen if you haven't got good access to transport. But what I want to say, I think, this afternoon is that as well as being particularly vulnerable, the kind of upside of that is thoughtful transport policies that do take children and young people's needs into account also have enormous potential for um, addressing inequalities and creating some sort of knock-on, spin-off benefits for well-being across society. I should just say, I'm thinking about equity and transport in two senses before I start. The first one is that um, thinking about children and young people as a group who are vulnerable as a group in, in themselves, or all children's needs are potentially rather marginalised if the kinds of transport systems that we've been rather fond of over the last few decades continue to marginalise their needs and, and it's, uh, Danny's already touched on some of the ways that happens that if um, road systems and I've just got a picture on, on, on the right there uh, from a, a particularly unpleasant junction on the North Circular Road that, 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 that um, crosses so that there's a primary school, a secondary school, a swimming pool and a library and a, 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 and a, a tube station on, on the four quadrants but what it is is impossible to get across um, that junction safely. There is no traffic light phasing that prioritises pedestrians. So if you're a child and you live in that neighbourhood, at some point in your life you're going to have to literally dash across um, several lanes of fast-moving traffic, as you see, to get to your school at one point or another. Now that's the kind of traffic system that, that for years Transport for London argued, well, if you change the traffic light phasing, unfortunately the queues of traffic will get so long and it'll... Um, it'll uh, uh, create gridlock and, and then the cars won't be able to get round. Now that's, I, I, and I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not a traffic planner, I don't want to comment on whether that's a good or a bad thing, but it's clearly a setting in which children's mobility needs come fairly low down the list of things that we're prioritising in terms of our systems. So all young people um, and a whole lot of other groups in society are marginalised by those, those sorts of policies. Secondly, though, some young people, of course, are more marginalised than others by those kinds of transport systems. To get to that swimming pool, if you live on the opposite kitty corner, I think as the Americans call it, of that crossroads, 
Most parents drive their children. It's only about a 10-minute walk for most of the streets around there, but you really wouldn't want them crossing that road, so they drive them. Now, that has all the effects Danny's already uh, mentioned. It means we're walking less, cycling less. But also, for the parents who haven't got a car, they can't do that. And that puts young people at greater risk of injury. The kinds of gradients we've already seen today, and I think traffic injury is one of the most stark. And I still find it quite shocking that if we take data like this from child pedestrians in, in this is just London, and again, if we take the least deprived, the most affluent areas are number one, and your risk of being, if you're under 16, crossing those kinds of roads in the most affluent areas is one. As you move up into the more and more deprived areas, every gradient you go up increases your risk of being injured on the roads until if you get into the most deprived areas of London, your risk is almost, but sorry, it's over three times that in the most affluent areas. And it's not difficult to see some of the reasons why. Poorer households are less likely to own a car. Their children are more likely to be then exposed to that kind of traffic risk. So there are some risks that are make some children more vulnerable than others. And that's just the direct effects of transport policies. There are also, of course, all kinds of indirect effects in terms of social participation. If your parents haven't got a car to drive you to the swimming pool, the chances are they're not going to be able to easily get you to all those out-of-town shopping trips, to the, the mole that's out of town, to the children's parties that are increasingly organised in out-of-town leisure centres. Your possibilities for social participation are much tougher. You can't, it's not that you can't do it, it's just that they become much tougher. So there are all kinds of indirect effects as well from those transport systems that prioritise cars above child pedestrians and that increasingly make roads um, more dangerous and parents more anxious about letting their children go out on the roads. And again, Danny's already flagged up the implications that's got for some very direct health effects like childhood obesity as well. Um, sorry, and as we said, that has some, that has some implications for, um, for all kinds of other health effects like chance of walking and cycling. And what we've seen over time since the mid-80s is a rise in how many kilometres are travelled as car occupants by young people and a consequent decline in how much time they're spending um, walking or cycling. Now, that's got direct health effects. It's also got some indirect ones, because, of course, if you're walking and cycling, you can do that independently, mostly. You don't need um, to depend on your parents to get you around, as you do if you're in a car. So that's the, 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 the setting. What I want to do is just talk about two policies that I think, um, and, I, and these are just London examples, that I think have had some positive effects on those sorts of direct and indirect effects of transport policies on well-being and have also addressed inequalities. The first of those policies is 20 mile an hour zones to reduce speed, um, traffic speeds on our, on our residential roads. Now, 20 mile an hour zones do what they say on the tin. They do reduce traffic speeds, and as you might expect, they consequently reduce the risk of being injured on roads. And a, a, a recent study found that over and above the background decline in injury, 20-mile-an-hour zones had been effective in the streets that they've been implemented in reducing injuries by 42%. Now, what's happened in London is since the, um, since the mid... Um, sorry, since the early 1990s, 
local authorities have been disproportionately placing those 20 mile an hour zones in those most deprived neighbourhoods. That's the, I think it's still red, yes, that's the red line on the graph there. So this is the number of kilometres of road that local authorities have put um, under 20 mile an hour zones and we've split it up again, this time just splitting London into five, the areas into five groups with the most deprived, the red at the top and the least deprived at the bottom. And what that shows is those 20 mile an hour zones have been put disproportionately in the poorest areas. Now that's had an effect, that's had an effect on, um, I'm going to skip the next slide, on, because they work, whatever area you put them in, they reduce the number of casualties. What that's done is saved, if you like, more collisions in poorer areas than richer areas. If you just look at the, um, oh, the tables we've got here which are um, just show that it's, it's our estimate of the number of casualties that have been saved specifically by the 20 mile an hour zone. So it's, it's, if they weren't there, um, we think there'd have been around 500 more casualties in those poorer areas and a smaller number in the others. So what that's done is to some extent mitigated those widening um, gradients that we've already seen in terms of inequality a very upstream engineering measure that kind of stops one of the root causes of inequality at source, speeding traffic, has had an effect in mitigating um, inequality. It hasn't dealt with it because it, it can't, but it's certainly mitigated widening inequalities in health. So that's, that's one example of a policy that can have those effects, as well as all the other positive effects that, that slowing the traffic speed has. The second example I want to give you, um, and this picks up something... Um, that's also been raised by previous speakers about whether what we want is a targeted intervention. To some extent, this is. It's, it's been targeted, even if not deliberately, at low-income areas. Or whether what we want is a universal intervention. And the second example I want to give of a transport policy that I think has had some really positive effects is a universal one. And the reason I want to uh, use this example is because I think the fact that it's universal is one of the reasons why it has had some of the very positive effects that we have found. Free bus travel for young people wasn't an entirely uh, universally popular intervention when it was first brought in. Transport for London, or under the, the Greater London Authority, introduced free bus travel for young people to do two things, or at least it had two kind of aims originally. One was to address transport poverty, to make sure that young people weren't excluded from education or training or other activities because they couldn't afford the transport they needed in the capital. The second was a rather broader aim, and it fitted in with a, um, a broader agenda of making London's transport system a little bit more sustainable. Now, of course, a car-dominated transport system is not sustainable long-term. Long we can't just keep getting more and more crowded roads. That's not sustainable. So what they wanted to do was embed more environmentally aware habits from an early age. And the thought was if you could get young people using the bus in the context of a good bus service, that would um, make them think that maybe when they're older they can bring the nappies home on the bus and they're not going to need to buy a car in order to access all the goods and services they need. So those were the sorts of aims... A sort of double one, one around very directly around inequalities and one around improving the well-being of the city for all the citizens who live in it. What I want to do 
<coughs> and, and there are no more graphs now, you, you, you may be pleased to know, is take some of the data that, that we've got from an evaluation of this scheme, but I'm just going to use the data from young people's own words, because we, we, part of the evaluation of this scheme was an interview study with um, over 100 young people from various areas of London. And what I'm going to do is just say something about the effects of that scheme using those young people's own words. So I'm not, I'm not going to mention the, um, the more statistical data that came out of the evaluation at all, just to go through some of the effects that that had. The first thing, and, and perhaps not surprisingly, if you give people free travel, what they do is use more of it. And the first effect that scheme had was that young people did use the bus far more. In fact, what was striking across our data set was just how much or how, and how important bus travel was for young people in London, but how much they took it for granted. No, well, there are some exceptions and important ones I'll come to later, but in general, no young people in London talked about financial costs as a barrier to getting anywhere they needed to go. And those are just two quotes that, that illustrate that. The, the range of places they went, not just school and college, but sports clubs, church friends' houses, um, dancing, wherever they needed to get to, most young people said, it's not a problem, take it for granted. I've got my zip card, I can, I can travel around. Importantly, they could do that without relying on parents for money for transport and without relying on parents for lifts. So, so it's, it, it's independent travel, at least in the sense of being able to have a bit of autonomy over when you leave, who you travel with, how you get to places. Um, this is kind of most obvious. I mean, I said it was taken for granted. The point where it wasn't taken for granted was where young people had had their past taken away from them. Now, that happened either because you lost it or because under Transport for London's behaviour code, it might have got confiscated if you'd... Various things could mean you had it confiscated. It didn't happen often, but when it did, the young people who had had their card taken away really were struck by what a difference it made not having their bus pass, um, as, as one young man said, uh, yeah, one young man said, when I didn't have it, I really did struggle in terms of not getting places. And young people said of their friends who didn't have one, you know, it's a real pain. If one person hasn't got a bus pass, it, it makes it very difficult for all of us to get around because we have to take, normally, we don't think about it. So what that scheme has done is virtually removed financial causes of transport poverty for young people in London. Now, that, that's quite dramatic, it's taken for granted by the young people we talk to because they, they, they haven't known anything different. But if you compare that to other places in the country, even other cities, that, that, that's actually quite a dramatic effect. Secondly, though, it's not just about getting places and being able to get where you want to go. The bus in itself is an important space for many young people. In cities where young people are increasingly pushed out, unwelcome in the shopping centres, um, unwelcome even hanging around parks sometimes. Uh, they might not have houses that are comfortable to, 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 to have their friends back to visit in. You get told off if you're hanging around the chip, the chip shop. There aren't that many places to be. Now, what this scheme has done is opened up the bus as a site in itself that's quite an important one for social participation. It's somewhere to talk to your friends. It's somewhere to go. It's somewhere to be. A bus trip can provide some entertainment. Um, and just somewhere to sit and talk quietly, oddly. It's a private, even though it's a public transport. Sorry? 
Not quietly. I'll get, we'll come to that in a moment. And I know the, the perspective of older people. We, we also talk to a lot of older bus users. Um, but interestingly, it wasn't the old... It, as an aside, the older citizens didn't mind because they generally use different parts of the bus to young people. Uh, the people who did mind were, were sort of middle-aged people. <laughs> but, um, so talk quietly, perhaps talk more loudly, play, play your music, but it's a place to be. I, I, I'm not going to talk about the effects on other bus passengers, but what I want to do is very much focus on um, the young people's perspectives, just because I think, as I was suggesting earlier, that's the bit that gets ignored a bit sometimes in transport planning. So this opening up of the bus as a space for socialisation, uh, for, sorry, for socialising and for, um, uh, for entertainment, has had a number of effects. It's had, first of all, it's had an effect in developing many young people's skills in independent travelling around. It gives you a way without any financial cost or risk for discovering your city, not just your own small neighbourhood, but London as a city and as a polity itself, and also feeling a sense of belonging, therefore, to that city. If that's a place you're welcome, and you're welcome to travel across the whole breadth of it, that's then a place that makes you feel that you belong to. And in fact, some young people did say explicitly, you know, my zip card actually makes me feel I belong to London. It's something that makes me feel like a Londoner. And it makes me feel proud to be a Londoner, particularly when you have visitors or cousins coming from other cities that don't have that scheme. It's something to show off about. It's, um, it's a city that's, that's modern. It's, it's a city that looks after its young people. So it's also an inclusive way to travel. Most young people we talked to were very keen that travelling included everybody, that it was a way for everyone to travel together. And of course the bus pass does that because it's universal. That only works because everyone, at least in theory, has access to bus services. Um, and that's why they sometimes, often in fact, preferred the bus to the car. You could get your dad to give you a lift, but actually that would mean you had to logistically connect with other people going somewhere. Whereas if you're all going to the bus stop or you're connecting along a bus route, you can all travel together. Now there's one important exception to that, which I think tells us a little bit about how and why this scheme works. And that was young people with disabilities. When we spoke specifically to people with disabilities, that, that their accounts were almost the polar opposite. Rather than the bus being a space that you could travel together and that you could travel independently, many young people with disabilities talked about the bus as a barrier to social participation and inclusion. Buses were difficult to get on. You might have to wait a long time for one that had space to get on. Once you've got your wheelchair on the bus, there's actually only room for one wheelchair at a time. So if you want to travel with a friend who's also using a wheelchair, you can't do it. So for young people with disabilities, they might have financial access to the bus services, but they certainly don't have practical access to those services. So, um, oh, but for able-bodied Londoners, those who could use the buses, and this is why it's important, I think, in the context of a good accessible service, the other effect that that, ha that, that scheme has had, and I think this is a really important one, although it may not be obvious, is that what that brought you into contact with is perhaps a greater cross-section of London society than you would see in almost any other setting. Now, if Danny talked about one of the corroding effects of greater inequality, 
being that that we're increasingly in corralled settings where we only ever talk to people who are a bit like us. A London bus is often a salutary reminder that the world is full of a whole range of different people. You might not get the richest 1% on the bus, but you really have got quite a cross-section of other people. And I think these just extracts from a, a very long discussion that some young people in Sutton had just gives a flavour of that. They're just talking about what happens when you're, you're going on a bus trip. The, you, get, you come across older people, mothers, the kids going to primary school, you've got older people, you've got the other school kids, you've got this kind of cross-section. They talked in detail about the interactions you might have as well on the bus, particularly with older citizens. Um, and I've just got one little example there. Now, I don't want to give some kind of rather rosy sort of picture of... Um, Londoners getting on when a post-Olympic spirit of, of friendliness. It's not like that. They're often those interactions are quite difficult. And I think anyone who uses his cheek by jowl in crowded London transport will attest to the fact that those encounters are not always straightforward. They're not always pleasant. But that's partly the point. Everyone has them. Everyone has that, that um, competing for space, competing side by side with that range of Londoners. And that's important for learning at a fairly fundamental level that public transport is a way that everyone uses to get around. It's a normal way to get around. It's not a stigmatised way to get around. Margaret Thatcher apocryphally, I'm sure, said some years ago that, that any man on a, on a bus at the age of 30 might consider himself a failure. I think, I, 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 whether she said that or not, I don't know, but the fact that it's believed, I think, says a lot about the image of bus services traditionally and in many parts of the country that yes you want a car because getting shopping home on the bus is a bit of a nightmare what this scheme has had a role in doing is removing some of that stigma obviously only in the context of a good and efficient bus service as we saw with young people with disabilities if the bus service isn't working it doesn't matter how free it is or how many people can use it nobody's going to but in the context of a good bus service Offering free travel to young people destigmatizes it as a mode of transport, and that has some really important implications, not just for their well-being and independence and participation in the short term, but in the much longer term for sustainable cities going in for the next generation. So, um, to, to kind of sum up, just on, on the bus travel, I've suggested it's had a number of very positive effects. I mean, I haven't talked in detail about the evidence for that, but I hope I've given you a flavour of some of the effects that it's had. It's provided at an individual level an independent mode of travel across the social spectrum in London. So it doesn't matter how rich or poor you are as a child, you can travel independently to get almost anywhere you want to go, or at least you've got the financial ability to do that. It's provided at a time when many commentators are worried about the exclusion of children from our public spaces, the fact that they are um, demonised by high-pitched screeches outside shopping uh, strips so that, that, that they, they can't go there, where they're not allowed to hang around shopping centres, where they're, they're moved on from public space. The bus actually provides a vital space for interaction and a space in which they come across a cross-section of society it provides a, an instant solution almost to one really important element of transport poverty, ability to get around. And importantly for the future, it provides a way of destigmatizing bus travel for a whole generation and potentially removing, therefore, incentives that you have to be able to drive 
to get around and to have status as a traveller. Now, just to pull together what the implications of those two examples I've given you for 20 mile an hour zones as an engineering solution and free bus travel as a, a sort of be a universal benefit solution to inequalities. <clears throat> I'm suggesting in the context of transport at least, and I don't know how generalisable that might be to other causes of inequality, that addressing action at the root causes of inequality, whether that's fast moving traffic or the inability of people to pay to get from A to B, addressing those root causes has real potential for that elusive win-win of both benefiting the whole curve, making, um, making society better for everyone, as well as reducing that gap and reducing some of the effects of inequalities um, across, across society. So I'll leave it there. Thank you. For all information, please visit www.gresham.ac.uk.